Chapter 19 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford. Chapter 19. The Sicilian Expedition and the Last Years of the War. Part 1. Italy and Sicily Before the Expedition. 474 to 415. Italy after 474. Meantime, events were happening in Italy and Sicily which affected the destiny of the Hellenic race. The great naval battle off Cumae marks the beginning of the decline of the Etruscans. Their devotion to luxury, their lack of a strong central authority, and after no long time the aggressions of the barbarous Gauls brought political stagnation and finally decay. Rome and the Latins however receptive of Hellenic culture, however martial in spirit and in organization, remained more than a century too weak for an imperial policy. Meanwhile, it was left to the Sibelians, a numerous virile people of the interior, to succeed the Etruscans as the dominant power. Sibelians and Greeks Their aggressive movements were caused by overpopulation. In the latter half of the 5th century, they poured down into the fertile district about the Bay of Naples. They seized Etruscan Capua, 438, then Hellenic Cumae, 421, and, with the exception of Naples, the whole region, henceforth known as Campania. The conquest by no means rested here. Farther south, the territory about the Gulf of Salerno fell into their hands. Poseidonia, the seat of a beautiful temple to Poseidon, was among the captive cities, about 400. Its inhabitants forgot their native speech and adopted the institutions and habits of the conquerors. Once a year, however, they held a Hellenic festival, in which they recalled their ancient speech and customs and wept over the loss of them. In this region, Elia alone, a small state yet organized for defense by her philosophers, maintained her independence. Those Sibelians, who had thus advanced into southern Italy, were grouped in one powerful tribe, or federation of tribes, known as the Lucanians. At this time they were the strongest and most aggressive people of the peninsula. Most of the Greek cities which remained free formed a close defensive alliance against them. These states were in general highly prosperous. The Sibelians adopted from them their useful arts, their armor, and even the Pythagorean philosophy. Prosperity of Hellenic Sicily after 474. Sicily, too, had wars with the natives of the interior, but they were less formidable and gradually yielded to the political supremacy as well as to the culture of Hellas. The republics had their internal struggles with demagogues of tyrannic aspiration or with the rising ochlocracy, but these troubles were little hindrance to their material and intellectual prosperity. The Sicilians traded with the mother country, with Latium, and far more extensively with Carthage. Increasing wealth brought the citizens comforts unknown to the motherland. Fine soft garments, gold and silver plate, expensive furniture including especially luxurious beds and sofas. At Syracuse, the art of cookery reached a high degree of perfection, and the well-to-do rode in comfortable carriages, while the richest men of Athens journeyed on foot, or at the best, mounted saddle mules. The people of Akragas were building a magnificent temple to Zeus, 
those of Salinas, a still greater temple to Apollo, second only to that of the Ephesian Artemis within the Hellenic world. In their luxuries, in the magnificence of their buildings, in the soft sensuousness of their fine arts, they departed widely from the Hellenic precept of self-restraint to assume a character and follow a career of their own. Syracusan Ambition and Athenian Interference The intellectual progress of the Sicilians, their contribution to philosophy and rhetoric, has been mentioned in another connection. We have also considered the commercial relations of Athens with Italy and Sicily, leading to treaties with individual cities. This political interference was promoted by the growth of Syracuse in power and in ambition. She built a great fleet, increased her military force, and with the sympathy of her Doric neighbors, she began a policy of aggression against Leontini and other near-lying Chalcidic cities. Early in the Peloponnesian War, Leontini sent an embassy, headed by the famous rhetorician Gorgias, native of that city, to Athens, where his rhythmic prose entranced the Athenians, who never before had heard such musical discourse. They sent small aid, which accomplished little. 427. Part 2. The Expedition. 415-413. The Athenians decree an expedition to Sicily. 415. The triumphant rise of Alcibiades, however, meant a resumption of the policy of conquest, and nowhere opened so fair a field as Sicily. Segesta, a native city in alliance with Athens, asked protection against Salinas, and promised to pay the expenses of an expedition. This was the pretext for an invasion of Sicily. Nicias strenuously opposed the undertaking. His contention was that Athens needed all her strength for restoring and maintaining her empire, and for her own defense against Thebes and Peloponnese. Furthermore, even if Sicily could be conquered, it would be impossible to hold that great island in subjection. Against the judgment of Nicias, Alcibiades persuaded the Athenians to send a fleet of a hundred and thirty-four triremes, conveying a force of five thousand heavy infantry. The commanders were Nicias, Alcibiades, and Lamachus. The last named was a splendid old fighter who had learned warfare in the school of Pericles. The Magnificent Fleet On the fleet, the greatest pains and expense had been lavished by the trirarchs and the state. The public treasury gave a drachma a day to each sailor, and furnished empty hulls for sixty swift sailing vessels, and for forty transports carrying hoplites. All these ships were manned with the best crews which could be obtained. The trirarchs, besides the pay given by the state, added somewhat more from their own means to the wages of the upper ranks of rowers and of the petty officers. The figureheads and other fittings provided by them were of the most costly description. Every one strove to the utmost that his own ship might excel both in beauty and swiftness. The infantry had been well selected and the lists carefully made up. There was the keenest rivalry among the soldiers in the matter of arms and personal equipment. While at home the Athenians were thus competing with one another in the performance of their several duties, to the rest of Hellas the expedition seemed to be a grand display of their power and greatness, rather than a preparation for war. If anyone had reckoned up the whole expenditure of one, the state, two, individual soldiers and others, including in the first not only what the city had already laid out, 
but what was entrusted to the generals, and in the second, what either at the time or afterward private persons spent upon their outfit or the triarchs upon their ships, the provision for the long voyage which every one may be supposed to have carried with him over and above his public pay, and what soldiers or traders may have taken for purposes of exchange, he would have found that altogether an immense sum amounting to many talents was withdrawn from the city. Men were quite amazed at the boldness of the scheme and the magnificence of the spectacle, which were everywhere spoken of, no less than at the great disproportion of the force when compared with that of the enemy against whom it was intended. Never had a greater expedition been sent to a foreign land. Never was there an enterprise in which the hope of future success seemed to be better justified by actual power. Mutilation of the Hermai, 415. Some time before the departure of the expedition, the Athenians were horrified one morning to find that the Hermai in front of their doors had all been mutilated. These were square stone pillars, ending at the top in the head of Hermes, or of some other god, and were highly venerated as the guardians of peace and public order. The people were seized with terror, lest, as a step toward overthrowing the democracy, a band of conspirators might thus have attempted to deprive the city of her divine protectors. In a panic, the citizens assembled on the pinnacks and voted immunity and rewards to any who should inform against the perpetrators. On the mutilation of the Hermai, there was no disclosure. Probably it was the act of young men in a drunken frolic. Informers revealed the fact, however, that certain persons, among them Alcibiades, had profaned the Eleusinian mysteries by parodying them at private gatherings in the presence of the uninitiated. Democratic politicians, opposed to Alcibiades, schemed to bring him to trial for the sacrilege, but appreciating his popularity with the soldiers and sailors, they delayed the prosecution till the armament had sailed away. The incident proves that in spite of all progress in culture, the Athenian masses were as devoted as ever to the traditional religion. Condemnation and Escape of Alcibiades, 415 After the departure of the fleet, the enemies of Alcibiades resumed their agitation against him. An indictment for sacrilege was drawn up against him by Thessalus, son of Chemon, and the Salaminia, an official trireme, sailed to Sicily to order his return. On the homeward voyage, he made his escape to Peloponnese, and finally took up his residence at Sparta. There his counsels proved most potent for the overthrow of his country. The Athenians in Sicily, 415-414 Meanwhile, the Athenian commanders, disagreeing as to plan, frittered away nearly a year in petty undertakings, wasting their resources, dispiriting their own men, and exciting contempt in the minds of the Sicilian Greeks. In the following year they besieged Syracuse, 414, but Lamachus was killed, and Nicias proved wholly incompetent for vigorous offensive. When autumn came, the besiegers were in wretched plight, and Nicias, having made no appreciable headway, would gladly have abandoned the siege, but dared not face the Athenians in assembly. When, however, they received his report, which detailed the condition of the armament, and asked that it be recalled or reinforced, the assembly, far from abandoning the enterprise, voted heavy reinforcements. Renewal of the War in Greece, Second Expedition to Sicily, 413. Peloponnesians and Boeotians resumed the war, 
and invaded Attica in the spring of 413. On the suggestion of Alcibiades, they established a permanent garrison at Decalia in northern Attica. As a result, the Athenians gave up their country homes and the farms and vineyards which they loved, and withdrew permanently into the city. Thousands of slaves deserted to the enemy, industry and commerce shrank, and the people were soon cramped with want. In spite of all these misfortunes, and of even greater dangers impending, they sent to Syracuse another great armament of seventy-three triremes, with five thousand heavy infantry on board, under the command of Demosthenes, their ablest general. The persistence of the Athenians in their plan of conquest, and their energy in mustering for it all available resources in the midst of dangers at home, are marvelous. Disaster 413. On his arrival at Syracuse, Demosthenes found the besiegers in a miserable condition. They had lost a naval battle in the harbor, and this failure, together with sickness and the want of material comforts, had robbed them of all courage. The only hope was an immediate success. The strenuous offensive of Demosthenes, however, utterly failed, and when he proposed to embark the army and sail away, an eclipse of the moon delayed the superstitious Nicias. Meanwhile, the Syracusans again defeated the Athenian fleet, after which they blocked the mouth of the harbor. Nothing remained to the besiegers but a retreat by land. The End after great suffering and loss, the two divisions of the retreating army, led by Demosthenes and Nicias respectively, were hemmed in and compelled to surrender. Many were taken by individual Syracusans and privately sold into slavery. The two generals were put to death. The public prisoners, amounting to more than 7,000 Athenians and allies, were imprisoned in stone quarries. Packed together with their wounded and their dead in a cramped place, with no shelter from the rain or burning sun, with insufficient food and water, they suffered untold agony. After ten weeks, the miserable survivors were rescued from these horrors to be sold as slaves. Nothing was saved from the two glorious fleets that had sailed from Piraeus, and of the many who went forth, few returned home. A Crisis in Hellenic History It was a crisis in Hellenic history. The Athenians had had it in their means with wise management to build up a lasting power, the strongest in Hellas, to win recognition of their political leadership from many or all the other Greeks, and to lift their race to a political destiny worthy of its civilization. All these possibilities they sacrificed to a scheme of conquest ill-conceived and managed with obstinate folly. As a far-off result of their failure, the political supremacy of the world was to pass to a people who lacked the Hellenic refinement and brain power, but who practically showed greater respect for the rights of others. Part 3. The Last Years of the War Feelings of the Athenians, a New System of Taxation, 412 For a time, the Athenians at home could not believe that a disaster so great had befallen them. When, however, they came to appreciate the truth, they vented their rage upon the orators and the soothsayers who had persuaded them to the expedition. At first they were dejected by the utter hopelessness of the situation, their want of men, money, and ships, but soon their elastic spirits rose, and they determined to persist against all odds. To increase their revenue to the uttermost without seeming to add new burdens to their allies, 
they displaced all tributes by a customs duty of 5% on imports and exports throughout the empire. This system remained to the end of the war. A universal coalition against Athens. The Hellenes eagerly flocked to the Lacedaemonian standard in the hope soon of trampling upon the common foe. The Persian king, on condition of recovering the Greek cities of Asia Minor, gave money and promised the aid of a Phoenician fleet. The maritime allies began to revolt against Athens, and the victorious navy of Syracuse appeared in Aegean waters. But the persistence of the Athenians, stripped of resources, against these overwhelming odds during a period of eight years, is evidence of an almost indomitable will. Democracy curbed the Probuli, 412-411. The Sicilian disaster had a serious effect on Athenian politics. There had always been a strong minority opposed to popular government. Recent misfortunes strengthened their hands by seemingly proving the worthlessness of democracy, and for the time being the majority recognized the need of a modification of the constitution. The most crying demand was for a responsible magistracy. The people accordingly instituted a board of ten probuli, committee of public safety, to be filled by mature men annually elected. They were to take the place of the Britannius in initiating administrative measures to control finance and to attend to the building and the equipment of the navy. This wholesome reform was largely stultified by the choice of elderly men like the poet Sophocles, who lacked resolution and energy. An oligarchic plot in the army, 411. The first decisive step toward abolishing the democracy, however, was taken by an oligarchic club of officers in the army then encamped in Samos. Their leading motive was to secure for themselves the place in the government to which, in their opinion, their rank entitled them. At the same time, they were receiving overtures from Alcibiades. It chanced that, having fallen out with Aegis, king of Lacedaemon, he had passed over to the Persians and was now plotting his return to Athens. With no hope of a recall through the democracy, he promised the Athenians at Samos that if they should set up an oligarchy, Tissaphernes, satrap of Sardis, would transfer the Persian support from Lacedaemon to Athens. Though groundless, the promise had its effect. Oligarchic Plottings in Athens Pisander and other envoys from the club at Samos repaired to Athens, and against a storm of indignation proposed an oligarchy with a view chiefly to winning Persian favor. At the same time, he joined with Antiphon, a legal advisor, the brain of the impending revolution, in organizing the oligarchic clubs which had existed in Athens from immemorial time. It was their policy to intimidate the multitude by assassinating their leaders. Establishment of an Oligarchy of the 400, 411 in a visit to Alcibiades, Pisander discovered that the wily exile had merely been tricking him with promises. Nevertheless, on his return to Athens, he proceeded with the establishment of an oligarchy. Terrorized by assassinations, the citizens permitted the institution of a council of 400, who should appoint officials and conduct the administration with absolute power. As a sop to the moderates, this form of government was termed provisional, and there was proposed a definitive constitution under which the sovereignty was to be held by the 5,000 wealthiest citizens organized in four great councils rotating annually. Some features of this constitution were borrowed from Boeotia. 
It is a noteworthy fact that the leaders of the oligarchic movement were neither eupatrids nor experienced politicians. They were educated men who, having learned their politics in the schools of the sophists, were now engaged in political experimentation. Normally, the Athenian constitution was an aggregate of traditional customs modified by written laws. Now, for the first time, as could be expected of sophists, it was a document. Both the provisional and definitive constitutions were written. The leading oligarchs intended by deferring the call for the 5,000 to keep the 400 permanently in power. A commendable feature of the new system was the abolition of all pay for civil services, except to the nine archons and the Pretanius for the time being, and the devotion of the entire revenue to the war. The rule of the 400, Alcibiades recalled, 411. The 400 proved unprincipled, unpatriotic, and incompetent. They could maintain themselves in no other way than by terrorism and secret murder. They offered to buy peace of Lacedaemon at any price, and their weakness lost Euboea to the enemy. No sooner had their position grown insecure than they split into two factions. The extremists were led by Antiphon, Pisander, and one or two others. The moderates followed Theramenes, who had been largely instrumental in establishing the 400, but whose ideal was a limitation of the franchise to those who could equip themselves for service in the heavy infantry. His faction was supported by the troops at Samos, who, having overthrown their oligarchic leaders, elected Thrasybulus, an able and undoubted patriot, to the generalship, recalled Alcibiades, and placed him in chief command. A Democrat once more, Alcibiades stood ready to devote his extraordinary talents to repairing the havoc he had wrought in his country's fortunes. These circumstances emboldened Theramenes and the moderates to overthrow the 400, after its rule of four months, and to establish in power nominally the 5,000, in reality all above the Thetic census. Command of Alcibiades, 411-407. Battle off Cyzicus, 410. Under the weak rule of the 400, the war, which hitherto had been limited to the Aegean, extended to the Hellespontic allies of Athens. Thus her resources were further lessened. In that quarter, however, Alcibiades gained a brilliant victory over the enemy of Cyzicus. Their entire fleet was taken or destroyed, and Mindarus, their commander, was killed. A dispatch sent by the second-in-command, but intercepted on its way to Sparta, read, Ships gone, Mindarus dead, the men starving, at our wit's end, what to do. The Spartans now offered peace on the basis of the status quo, but the Athenians, led by Cleophon the liar-maker, rejected the terms. It proved to be a great mistake, but they were unduly elated by the victory and by their hope in Alcibiades. Complete Restoration of the Democracy, 410. It was doubtless under the impression of the victory that the Athenians restored the complete democracy and required every citizen to take a solemn oath to support it. About the same time, they appointed a commission to revise various public and criminal laws and to inscribe them on stone. Among the products of their labor, we have preserved a mutilated inscription of Draco's laws of homicide and a still more fragmentary statute for defining the judicial competence of the 500 and of the assembly. About the same time, as the revenues were increasing, the Athenians reintroduced pay for official service and began to celebrate the festivals with the old splendor, in spite of the fact that the soldiers and sailors 
in default of pay, had often to plunder the allies. The extreme want of the poor in the city, verging upon starvation, led to the distribution of two obols daily among the most needy. The revenue, however, soon dwindled and poverty increased. Cyrus and Lysander at the Seat of War, 408. The temporary success of Athens was partly due to the vacillation and rivalry of the satraps, Tissaphernes of Sardis and Pharnabazus of the Hellespontic region. In 408, Darius sent Cyrus, the younger of his two sons, to take the satrapy of Sardis with large powers in order to give all possible aid to the Peloponnesians. The young man brought great ambition and unusual intelligence to the work. In the same year there came from Sparta to the seat of war Lysander, an able commander and crafty manager of men. His ultimate object was nothing less than a throne at Sparta. To reach the goal of his political hope, he needed military renown and an army devoted to himself. In brief, he was the Spartan counterpart of Alcibiades. Cyrus readily fell under his influence. Battle off Notium 407, Retirement of Alcibiades. In the following year, Lysander defeated an Athenian fleet off Notium. During the absence of Alcibiades, his lieutenant Antiochus had ventured battle contrary to orders and lost 15 ships of war. It was a mortal blow to the ascendancy of Alcibiades. Forgetting his uniform success against overwhelming foes during the past four years, the Athenians, misled by his enemies, defeated his candidacy for the following year. Fearing to return home, he retired to the castles on the Hellespont and Propontis, which he had prepared against such a contingency, and from which he quietly reviewed the further operations of the war. The Battle of Arganusae, 406. Both parties put forth Herculean efforts in the hope of deciding the struggle in one more campaign. Callicratidas, supplanting Lysander, commanded a hundred and twenty ships. The Athenians, under eight generals, met him with a hundred and fifty triremes near the islands of Argonusae. In no other naval battle between Greeks were so many ships and men engaged. It was a complete victory for Athens. Seventy vessels of the Peloponnesians with their crews, amounting to 14,000 men and including their commander, were lost. The Athenians lost 25 ships with at least 2,000 sailors, who failed of rescue because of a storm. In grief and indignation over the death of so many kinsmen and fellow citizens, the Athenians at home deposed the commanders from office and brought to trial before the assembly the six who ventured to return to the city. In violation of the Constitution, they by a single vote condemned the accused to death. Among these victims of popular fury was Pericles, the son of Pericles and Aspasia. Battle of Igos Potami, 405. After another vain effort to negotiate peace with Athens, Lacedaemon again sent Lysander to the seat of war, and the Athenians dispatched against him their last possible fleet manned with their last available crews. A hundred and eighty Athenian ships confronted two hundred of the Peloponnesians in the Hellespont. The Athenian fleet, stationed on the European side at the mouth of the Igospotami River, was taken by surprise while the crews were searching for provisions on shore. Possibly one or more of their generals betrayed the fleet into Lysander's hands. At all events, it was for him a bloodless victory. 
the Athenian prisoners were massacred. Conan, one of the generals, escaped to Cyprus with eight ships, having sent the official trireme Paralus to Piraeus with the sad news. The Athenians received the news. It was night when the Paralus reached Athens with her evil tidings, on receipt of which a bitter wail of woe broke forth. From Piraeus, following the line of the long walls up to the heart of the city, it swept and swelled, as each man to his neighbor passed on the news. On that night no man slept. There was mourning and sorrow for those that were lost, but the lamentation for the dead was merged in even deeper sorrow for themselves, as they pictured the evils they were about to suffer, the like of which they had themselves inflicted on the Melians, who were colonists of the Lacedaemonians, when they mastered them by siege, or on the men of Histiaea, on Scione and Tyrone, on the Aigonetans, and on many other Hellenes. Exhaustion of Athens, measures of desperation. The resolution, passed next day, to put the city in condition to endure a siege, could not long avail, for Athens had no ships, men, or money, with which to resist. All her remaining allies revolted, excepting Samos, to whom in gratitude she granted her citizenship. Had this spirit of liberty been adopted at the beginning of the war, the result would have been far different. No prudence now, however, could rescue the city from her enemies. Arriving with his fleet, Lysander blockaded the ports, while Aegis closely invested the city by land. Even then, no one dared speak of submission while negotiations for peace involved some hope of fair terms. Peace, 404. In a Peloponnesian Congress, many allies, led by Corinthians and Thebans, proposed to blot Athens out of existence and to enslave her citizens. The Lacedaemonians replied that they would never reduce to slavery a city which was itself an integral part of Greece and had performed a great and noble service to Hellas in the most perilous of emergencies. The Lacedaemonians were probably actuated, too, by the desire to maintain in central Greece a counterpoise to Thebes, whose self-aggrandizement had for some time been exciting their suspicion. In accordance with the views of Sparta, the following terms of peace were proposed. That the long walls and the fortifications of Piraeus should be destroyed. That the Athenian fleet, with the exception of twelve ships, should be surrendered. That the exiles should be restored. And lastly, that the Athenians should acknowledge the headship of Lacedaemon in peace and war, leaving to her the choice of friends and foes, and following her lead by land and sea. Necessarily, Athens accepted the terms, for her people were starving, and from her position as the first power in Hellas, she sank to a second-rate dependency of Sparta. End of chapter 19